get the lights up, please. All right, let's go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. Uh, we believe that God uses His Word for a number of really valuable, important, wonderful things, uh, but the chief thing that he uses it for above all the other things that he uses it for is to reveal himself to his people. We, we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of him. And so if you don't have a copy of God's word, take that one. Titus chapter three. Uh, I got to move quick this morning because <laughs> my notes are longer than normal. I'm just giving you a warning. All right. So we are pretty deep now into our effort uh, to kind of walk through the book of Titus together. It's a short letter, but it's also an incredibly dense little letter. In fact, this series is already a couple of weeks longer than what we originally slated on the calendar, and we're not done yet. All right, we won't be done today either. All right, if you're new, Titus is written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a young disciple of his, now ministry partner of his, named Titus. That's how it gets the name. And it's written to address a problem that had crept up in an incredibly young, uh, young church. Paul and Titus had started this church together on the island of Crete uh, shortly after the end, of book of, uh, the end of the book of Acts. But Paul eventually moves on from there to go work on some other stuff. But he leaves Titus behind to kind of clean up the last little bit of stuff on the to-do list. But apparently... Titus struggled to clean some of those things up because, well, Paul writes a letter to deal with one of those things. All right, and so, um, like, some bad leaders, bad teachers had risen up from within the church and were making a mess of things. They were, they were teaching a works-based false gospel. In other words, they believed and taught that you could earn your way into right standing with God, earn salvation by kind of cobbling together the right combination of outward external religious actions, right? They combined together some Jewish ceremonial law and some pagan asceticism and maybe some other things as well. And then, uh, you know, do this five times a week. Never do this other thing again and make sure you're facing the right way when you do it, right? That's the kind of logic that was going on. And presto, you've got heresy. That, that's that's the, the, the potion that they drew up. And I know heresy is a bold term to be thrown around all willy-nilly, but that's literally the term that's required. The false teachers in Crete, they, they may have been thoroughly convinced that they were helping people, that they were kind of helping people lay spiritual action upon spiritual action so they could draw near to God, but what they were actually doing was harming people. Harming people. Why, though? Why, why are spiritual actions as an attempt to try to draw near to God such a bad thing? Like That sounds like a good thing, right? Well, it's because man-made religion clings to a belief that it's in man's power to accomplish. Forget action steps, forget zeal. The Bible is crystal clear that without the finished work of Jesus to make payment for sin, without being reconciled to God by God, through his freely given grace and mercy. The Bible's clear. No amount of man-made religion can ever close the gap that man-made sin created. We dug the hole. We can't dig ourselves out. That's the point. Now see, what was happening in Crete was a rejection of God's gospel as being good enough. It, it wasn't really an attempt to, to, to fix the problem. It, 
It was that God wasn't good enough. Oh, that can't possibly be it. There's got to be more to it than that. Certainly, God demands more from us than this simple thing. And so here, let's add this thing too, and let's add, add this thing too. And if we do this and this and this, maybe we can move the needle ourselves here. That's what's going on. And so by piling a bunch of religious actions on top of the gospel, it ceased to be the gospel that they were actually talking about. It had become something else. And so Paul wades into the mess. First chapter of the letter, Paul starts working on the leadership of the church. Why? Because if you get the leaders in a healthy spot, they are now in a position to lead everybody else towards health. And you can trickle down from there. And so he reminds Titus of why he left Titus there in the first place. To appoint, raise up elders, right? So how about we get around to doing that finally? Maybe we can clean this up. That's that's the point of Paul's letter. Titus is to raise up men of lofty character who teach and shepherd and protect the flock. That's their job. Men who stand up and own the responsibility of setting an example of maturity and making sure everyone around them is growing in their understanding of the gospel. But don't just raise up good leaders. Paul also tells Titus, Titus to remove the bad ones. That's a more fun job, right? Everybody likes raising up new guys. Nobody likes running off the bad ones. To silence the dum-dums. Prevent them from teaching anymore. And after addressing elders and false teachers, Paul moves down the line of influence and gives direction to older men and to older women. Everyone in the church is playing a role in this discipling responsibility. So everyone in the church should be looking for who to learn from and who to pass on and help bring along. But then last week, last week at the end of chapter 2, Paul began to shift his focus. If you weren't here, he began to, to, to take on the rebuttals that naturally arise whenever you start running out the false teachers. Most notably, the question, well, what about all this stuff that God calls his people to do? Like, isn't isn't there a long list of stuff that God expects from us? If if religious actions can't save us, Paul, if that's really the the flag you want to plant, then what about all the religious actions God calls us to do? What do we do with that list? And the answer that Paul gives is that the life and actions of a Christian flow out of a natural, joy-filled response to everything that God has already done. That's the answer. It flows out of a heart that has been changed by him to delight in him and in the things he calls us to do. Uh, And so we kind of flew right through it last week in that little section, three verses. Didn't give it as much attention as it deserves. You want to know why? It's because that's all of what chapter 3 is about. I get, to, I get to hammer it today. It's a good day. So are you ready? I don't think you're ready. All right. So Paul just introduced the logic at the end of chapter 2. Now he's ready to lean on it. So chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, remind them, speaking to Timothy, or not Timothy, speaking to Titus, talking about the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. All right, so Titus is tasked with consistently teaching the church under his care, right? That's what Paul means by remind them. Bring this up over and over again. And like before, I would argue that this extends to every elder of every healthy church. 
It's not just Titus's job. It's the job of every elder in every church. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has charged Titus and other elders with teaching something. If you're keeping score, all right, if you remember, Paul bookended chapter 2 with the same kind of command. Remind them this, uh, of this stuff. Consistently show them this stuff. He's charged, them to, uh, he charged Titus to teach sound doctrine all throughout chapter 2. And in the middle of chapter 2, he fleshed that out by showing that sound doctrine is the gospel. And so this new charge, it flows on the heels of the first one, right? It doesn't supplant the first one. It, it follows after the first one. If you're doing well, then teach these things too. So what are those other things? Well, for starters, Paul says to remind the church that they are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And he is very clearly talking about earthly authorities here, governmental leaders. And I'm sure no one in this room has a yeah but to offer. Right? Everybody's like, yeah, let's get ready. I'm so excited to be more obedient to my governmental leaders. Let's do this. You're laughing. Why are you laughing? It is funny, yeah. Can we be honest? I don't know if this is a place for that, but this verse is usually loved when it's your guy sitting on the throne, and it's usually hated when it's not your guy. Right? And that reality probably ought to teach us something important about how we continue to elevate politics to, to a place of idolatry in our culture. You want a measuring stick for spiritual maturity? If your obedience to this verse depends on whether or not you like the policies being set, then the issue is not with the verse. The issue is with our heart. Now, the, the obvious caveats are, are clear, right? Neither Paul nor anyone else is calling God's people to turn a blind eye to tyranny or to willingly participate in what God clearly calls sin. And nobody is calling for God's people not to take advantage of the opportunity to speak into our government and change things as we have privilege and ability to do. That is a good gift from God. Those are all good God-glorifying ways for Christians to not only engage, but I think love their community well. Those are good things, and we should lean on those things. But the posture of running as fast as we possibly can to figure out and point out all the yeah buts, it might tell us something about our heart. If we got to make a beeline as fast as we can to say, yeah, I get that, but, that, that might indicate some things less than Christ-like in us. So what is Paul saying then? He's calling us to a model citizenship. A model citizenship. He's calling us to go further down the road of grace and patience than those who do not have new hearts that look like Jesus. That's what he's calling us to. Those who have not been given a new heart with new priorities and a brand new finish line. Paul's calling us to a general posture of submissiveness. Not because we're naturally docile. I promise you, that's not in me. Not because we're naturally docile, but because our true authority and the things we chase after can't be burdened or undone by even really bad leaders. They're untouchable. See, the reason why Christians can have a posture of submissive to both good leaders and leaders that we think are really bad is because we stopped putting our hope in earthly leaders a long time ago. That, that's where our heart is. 
We don't put as much on the game as everybody else does. We're, we're playing a, a different game than them, and so we're chasing after a different trophy. And so submission to earthly authorities has absolutely nothing to do with winning right now. We are strategic right now so we can win an eternal prize coming down the road. It's an entirely different posture. And to the Apostle Paul, it's a lack of that eternal perspective, of that eternal accounting of things that proves an immaturity in the life of a Christian. So he lays it out as a marker of maturity here. Remind them of this. Paul, Paul sees the generally submissive posture as an important marker for grown-up Christians. Remind them, Titus. Consistently teach them of this, Titus. That's not the only marker he lays out. Paul also tells them to get them, quote, ready for every good work. So what's going on there? What are these good works that Paul is talking about? Well, I would consider it an others-focused action that reflects who we now are in Christ. That's what Paul means by good work. The gospel is not anti-work. The gospel is anti-earning. Those are not the same thing. I'll say it again because it, it needs to be sunk down deep. The gospel is not anti-work. The gospel is anti-earning. And if you're keeping score, this is the third time now that Paul has mentioned good works throughout this letter. Have you been tracking along with that? Anybody can point to them off the top of their head? I'm sure you can, right? All right, so in chapter 1, in chapter 1, I know it was like eight weeks ago for us, but in chapter 1, he says that false teachers are, quote, unfit for good works, meaning they are incapable of them. They can't do them. They may try to do works that they call good, but because of the sinfulness of their hearts, it's not going well. They're not as good as they think they are. In chapter 2, Paul brings up works again. Paul says that because of, of Jesus' redemptive work on our behalf, Jesus' people are now, quote, eager to do good works themselves. That's the cause and effects re effect response that we talked about last week. Excitement, not earning. God, work, good works, they flow naturally out of a heart that has been changed by him. So now here in chapter 3, here in chapter 3, we're, we're still in a positive context. He's still talking about it in a good way. But now, now Paul frames these exact same good works with the tone of a command. We were talking about eagerness last week, but now it's Something we're expected to do. The Greek word there for works is the word ergon. It's something you're obliged to do. You don't have a choice in the matter. It's something that, that it, it, you have to do because it's something you have to do. So does that take away our eagerness then? Did, did good works just become some kind of mindless duty all over again? Nope. No, it's precisely our new identities in Christ that creates us as workers of good it's who we now are we are obliged to do them because what else would we do what else would we do uh, our, our culture it is overly infatuated you watch the news for half a second our culture is overly infatuated with the idea of being true to yourself right Go and walk in, be true to who you claim to be at any given moment. But the gospel of Jesus gives you a brand new identity and says, go be true to that. Go do what God created you and is recreating you to do. So we are obligated to do works, do good works. We have to. And, and we are eager. 
Because that's who Jesus is making us to be. But submission and obedience and good works are they're not the only markers of Christian maturity. Paul keeps up in verse 2. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Speak evil of no one. We have another marker of Christian maturity. Who likes that one? Church family, a, a new heart changes the way you speak to people and about people. It just does. Oh, but what if that guy's a jerk? What if they got my order wrong? What if they think that this thing is clearly ruining society? What if they think that's a good thing, and even on top of that, they think I'm the bad guy for not agreeing with them? What about then? A new heart changes the way you talk to people and about people, period. You don't get to take time off because you feel like someone earned it. In fact, I'd argue, I'd argue that it's in the moments of conflict that our allegiance to Jesus' character and commands are most necessary. Most necessary. It's in, it's in those moments where the opportunity for being an ambassador for God's kingdom are most needed. And Paul says here that how you speak is an indicator of what it is you actually believe. How you talk to people is an indicator of what it is that you actually believe. Never as a, a way of earning your position with God. You can't clean up your language and your tone enough for God to finally be impressed with you. That one's got a slick tongue. I like him. That's not what's going on. Soft-spokenness is not a pathway for salvation. But according to Paul, it ought to be a fruit that flows freely from your salvation. It ought to be a natural byproduct of the position that you already have with God. Nearness changes you. There's a theological reality that everyone who claims to be a Christian needs to lock in and let sink down deep. Nearness to God changes you. And as you are changed, you not only begin to look more and more like him, you also begin to speak more and more like him. And I get it. I know saying that out loud, like everybody started going, like thinking of their best King James English. I want to talk like God. Clearly not what I'm talking about. No, I'm talking about truth wrapped in grace. Truth wrapped in grace. I'm talking about how God speaks to us in a self-sacrificing uh, care and concern. I'm talking about uh, that he speaks to us down on a level that we can comprehend without being absolutely undone by his holiness and other than this. I'm talking about how he meets us where we are and offers himself to us in spite of us. I, I'm certain, quite certain, I know I've got them. I, I'm certain that you've got people in your life that are jerks and morons and probably done you wrong. I've got a few myself. I am equally certain that you don't want for one second for God to speak to you like the jerk and moron and wrongdoer that you are. I don't want that. I don't think you do either. Paul says that one of the jobs of an elder, Titus's job, every other elder's job, is to consistently remind the church of that marker of Christian maturity. It's another measuring stick. 
Another measuring stick. You, you want a quick read indicator of, of kind of uh, uh, if someone is actually doing and following Jesus and understands the gospel in a way that they need to understand it. Like, watch how they talk to people. That's what Paul says. That doesn't mean that Christians don't fail and sin and all those things. Of course they do. Christians are capable of having really bad days. They're, they're, they're just as capable as anybody else is of forgetting who they are. Absolutely. But growth will always, always eventually show itself through both motive and patterns of progress. Or else it's not growth. So a, a complete lack of caring or, and or a complete inability to look back on some wins it's an indicator of something. It reveals who you really are regardless of whatever it is that you confess out of your mouth. Which leads to the next marker. Paul says, teach them to avoid quarreling. Have you noticed that there are some people in the world that just always go around looking for a fight to start? You know any of those people? I don't know any of those people at all. People that the drama always seems to follow them everywhere, mostly because they're always creating the drama. But that's not a mature Christian posture. Not at all. In, in the same way that, that, that we lean towards obedience and lean towards a soft-spokenness, we also lean towards peacemaking. We do what we can to stay out of the petty stuff. Not because we're shy. Not because we don't want to wade in. or It's not because we can't handle ourselves when the arguing starts. It's because with new, Jesus-focused priorities, we don't, we don't have time to meddle with the stuff that won't matter 10,000 years from now. You ever seen a parent arguing with their kids and bickering <laughs> over things? Like, like, in a moment, like, those of you who have kids, have you ever heard your kids bickering over a toy? That's never happened in my house. By the way, what's the correct p- answer from a parent when that happens? Nobody gets the toy, <laughs> right? Everybody go play in a different room. Separate yourselves, get lost. All right, go read a book. All right. What if, what if instead of answering like a parent, they joined in with the bickering? That would be a really awkward moment, right? That would be an incredibly awkward moment. Paul says that elders are to consistently remind the church to stay out of the nonsense. And it's not because the argument doesn't really matter, that the people involved in the argument are unpassionate. It's because we, we see differently and we value things differently and we have a longer view of what's going on here with higher priorities, right? Paul says that elders are consistently reminding the church to stay out of the nonsense and so Christian maturity is at least partially fleshed out by right priorities. But how does that square with recognizing and silencing the false teachers, right? Didn't Paul just go through all that kind of stuff? What is, if we're supposed to stay out of quarreling, what does it look like to silence the ones who are teaching bad stuff? Well, I would argue that that's not the petty stuff. 
It's not the petty stuff at all. I think there's a giant difference probably between stepping up to challenge falsity and challenge bad doctrine that actually harms people. There's a giant difference between that and being the kind of person who's always looking for the fight because you really enjoy the fight. See the difference in those two things? Yeah. And that leans into the next piece. Paul says, Paul says next that we are to be gentle. That's a fun word, gentle. We've seen that word recently, haven't we? If you remember back uh, into the beginning of April when we were walking through the fruit of the Spirit together, we looked at each fruit in turn, we talked about the fruit of gentleness, and we said then that there are two kind of main root words in the Greek that normally get translated as gentle in the New Testament. you got epikes and praites, all right? And everybody remembers that, right? Because everything I preach, you remember for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? The gentleness that Paul is talking about in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit text, that is praetes. It's a humble serving of those who are in a position of weakness. Those who have power are looking to actively serve and bring along those who are weak, right? And so, but that is not what we see here in this instance. That's not the word. We get the other word, epikes. That word's all about toleration. Toleration. You've got the power and you're putting up with the annoying one. You ever been in that situation? Just to bite your tongue and ride it out? Follow me here. Paul says that a marker of Christian maturity, a marker of Christian maturity is that we should have a long fuse, a slow-burning fuse with those who are always looking to get a rile out of us. He says that we should tolerate them. Now, why would that be something that must be seen in the life and character of God's people? Probably, my argument, and it's just spitballing on my, on my part, but probably because that's exactly what it takes to accomplish all the other things that God just called us to. Um, it's really hard to guard your tongue and avoid the unnecessary argument if your skin is thin, right? And so, believe it or not, a, a tolerant patience is a marker of Christian maturity, and for, and for good reason. Like, we want people, all people, even the really annoying people to come to salvation, so we'll put up with them even if they're really difficult to be around. Because we're playing a longer game. We're pointing them towards a prize that is a bigger deal and far more important than this given moment. So it's an act of love towards them to tolerate them. But that leads to the last marker in verse 2. And this is where it gets really interesting because Paul says, Titus, remind them to show perfect courtesy. Hey, anybody want to guess what the Greek word for courtesy is? You already know off the top of your head, right? I've actually already told you. It's praites, the other word for gentle. And so not merely toleration, a humble serving of those who are in a position of weakness. Paul hangs us on the hook for both versions of gentle in this text. We're to both tolerate the annoying and constantly looking for ways to serve them. That's fun. Who wants to go do that this weekend? What if I don't want to do that? What if I'd rather hold a grudge? What if I think it's more important to fight for what I want right now? And what if, what if I think that all this gentleness stuff is for the birds? What if I, I would rather be the one who fights for what I want? And I think all the people who are playing the gentleness game are the people who get walked all over in life. What do you say now, Woodard? I'd say that markers of maturity prove themselves to be the correct markers the very moment that they strike us as something we don't want to do. 
I'll say that again because I think it matters. I'd say that markers of maturity in the Christian life prove themselves to be the markers that we need the very moment that they strike us as something we don't want to do. That, that instinct to fight back, say, no, 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 that one's not for me. I think God's attacking something. They prove themselves to be exactly the markers of maturity that we need because they prick us at the foundations of our idolatry and pride. So much so that Paul doesn't, he doesn't carve out any caveats here. He, he doesn't say, well, you know, these, these things are really important and all, unless, unless you're having a bad day, of course, and just write them off. Titus remind them of these things. That, oh, that is obviously, unless the culture of Crete starts to become antagonistic to the church, and then it's probably best to throw your weight around a little bit. It's not what he says. Now, Paul lays out these markers, tells Titus to be consistent in teaching them because there is an expectation that they are all present and growing in the lives of God's people. Those who claim to know him, claim to be reconciled in him, are growing in these ways. Those who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Those who have been claimed by the king as a people for his own possession. They are slowly but surely being changed day after day after day to see the world and live in a way that more accurately reflects who he is. That's the game. Okay, 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 but... Like, how are, how are these markers and expectations, how are they different from the works-based false gospels that we've rejected? Well, well, we talked about it last week. We've already talked about it a little bit today. But in case you weren't here, the largest difference is the point at which they originate. They start from entirely different places. Works-based false gospels call you to do every possible thing in your power to keep piling on more and more and more external effort, all in the hopes that God will one day finally look down and go, that's pretty impressive. That's the game. Finally think that you have done enough to allow him to grace your presence. Finally allow you to be near him because he is holy and good and you finally made the cut. That's the game. But not only is it never within your power to achieve a perfect holiness for God, you don't have the legs for that, but we can, let's say for a second that you did have the legs for that, and you finally managed through grinding everything in you and working as hard as you can that you finally managed to get there. You can never take your foot off the gas. You have to keep up that perfection forever or else you'd lose it. And so when people finally get to the point where they figure out that they can't pull off that endless, perfect effort, when they finally discover that they are in way over their head, what they usually do is they respond in one of two ways. They either give up and go home, or they artificially reduce God's holiness to something that they can achieve. By either making him less holy than he is or by working their tails off to be holy in public and then setting it all down the moment they're in private. They change the rules of the game so that they can convince themselves and definitely convince everybody else who's trying to watch from a distance that they're making it. 
that they're actually pulling it off. But the true gospel, guys, is diametrically opposed to that understanding in every way, shape, and form. The true gospel begins with position and status lavished freely upon you because of the sufficient merit of the Son of God who lived sinlessly, died sacrificially, and was raised again victoriously to purchase a people for himself. Instead of fighting for position, you are lavished with position. It begins with that position and status being joyfully declared over you and miraculously birthed in you. And then, then proceeds to bleed out into the, from the core of you into every corner of who you are. Every corner of what you do. While the false gospel of works attempts to change who you are from the outside in, the true gospel gives you a brand new identity in Christ that then fleshes itself out in the only logical way possible. Works that reflect his character. Or to say it a different way, right knowledge of the gospel naturally produces a right living of the gospel. But if that wasn't enough, Paul goes into story mode here in verse 3. Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul says, hey, we all know where we came from. Let's not pretend that we've been putting it in some kind of lifelong work of solving our own problems and living in a way that God is impressed with every once in a while, pays attention to us for all the good things we do. Nah, no, that's not what's going on at all. No, we were foolish. We were foolish. God didn't save us when we were like 99% of the way there. You know, I'll give them a little bump to get them over the edge. No, that's not what was going on at all. He saved us in our foolishness, Paul says. He saved us when we were disobedient slaves of various passions and pleasures. What in the world does that mean? It means that our gods were our bellies. Whatever our appetites were driving us towards is exactly what we chased after. Had no higher calling or ambition than what pleased us in a particular given moment. It says that our days were filled with and defined by malice and envy. Before Jesus, we were fundamentally selfish creatures who, who neither loved our Creator nor other creatures as much as we loved ourselves. And so when those, when those others got in the way, God or any other person, when they got in the way of something that we thought we deserved, we despised them. So at the very least, at the absolute minimum, at the very least, in those, in those moments where you find yourself in a place where it's really, really hard to love some unlovely person, one of the very first things that we need to remember in that moment is that you was the unlovely person. You were the unlovely person. We were the ones who were difficult to love and had nothing to offer back to this good God. And so what caused the turnaround, right? That's the obvious question. What caused the turnaround? What shifted us from unlovely to loved by God? I mean, did we finally wake up one day and decide that, you know, to get our lives back in order, hit rock bottom and told ourselves, self, this will be the day I fix everything. Is that, is that what happened? And again, this is the, the key difference between a false gospel of works being preached in Crete and the gospel of Jesus. Look at verse 4. But, call time out there because it matters. I will continue to stand by this until the day I die. That is one of the sweetest words in the Bible. But, 
This is who we truly are. This is what we truly deserve. But, National Baptist Church, the world turns upside down with this three-letter word. But, but what? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. All right, Paul says, hey, we all know where we came from, but we also know who our God is. And in spite of our unloveliness, He is full of goodness. He is full of loving kindness. In spite of our unloveliness, He has appeared. And in spite of our loveliness, church, our unloveliness, He has saved us. Surely. Surely that's because we, we figured out something that He needed or wanted from us, right? Something that we traded, and so now He gets something out of the deal. Finally found a way to sweeten the pot and make it worth it to Him, right? clear that it wasn't because of any works of righteousness on our part because you know, I'm looking around I don't have any now Paul says that it was enough that we are a platform to showcase the depth of God's mercy that all of his creation will see and forever marvel at the God who saw fit to love the unlovely but how did he do it well, by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, poured out richly through Jesus Christ, of course. Makes total sense to everybody, right? If you didn't notice, none of those three things are things that you can do. They must be done to you. Doesn't matter what your work ethic is, doesn't matter how sincere you might be. Salvation, biblically speaking, salvation is a God-initiated event. Paul's describing a moment where the heart is awakened to its desperate need for a Savior because of its sin. Regeneration. A a moment where where the offer of Jesus is seen and understood as the only viable option for you. And where upon calling out to Him in saving faith, the Spirit of God dwells in you and gives you new life. In another place, John chapter 3, text that you're probably more familiar with, Jesus calls this moment being born again. For some... For some, it's a moment that is clear and obvious, unmistakable. You can remember back to a specific day on the calendar and what you were thinking as you walked through that step. You know exactly that moment. You love that moment. Others, it's more of a gradual shift, I think. You look back one day, you turn around, and you realize that apparently you believe this stuff for a while now. I don't know what happened, but Jesus did something. Jesus has been working on you from before you were even aware of it. But whether you can remember that moment or not, point to that moment or you can't point to that moment, what is non-negotiable, biblically speaking, is that God, in His goodness and in His great sovereignty, acted on the life of someone who was far from Him and brought them near. Not through any merit of your own, but through the perfect merit of His perfect Son working before you, and in you, and in spite of you. And I get it, that may cause, create some questions in some folks. Some of you might be thinking, but where does my decision to follow Jesus fall into the mix here? Or does it come into play? 
Well, according to verses 4, 5, and 6, the answer is not yet. The Bible never diminishes the decision you made to follow Jesus. In fact, it accounts it as eternally important. What the Bible does do is place that decision after a God-given change that has taken place in your heart to love the God that you used to rebel against. Something in you shifted, a change that causes you to desire Him and what He offers you when you rejected it before. So in that moment, in that moment, you did the most natural thing that anyone could ever do in your situation. You cried out to the one who is not only can save you, but is saving you. You gladly chose his offer because, like, like why else would, what else would you choose? Look at the offer. How could you not choose the offer? You've been given a new heart that thinks the offer is incredibly lovely, so you acted on it. But what's the aim of God in this moment? Like, 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 why is he working in people like this? What is he doing? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7. So that, call time out there. For those who haven't been here for very long, we always try to stop whenever we see this phrase in our text. And the reason for that is because we need to understand the weightiness of what is going on grammatically in this moment. The phrase so that is a, is a special conjunction that sets up a means to a greater end kind of relationship. I did blank so that I could do blank. All right? So whatever's going on in the first blank, awesome, great, wonderful. It may even be life-changing. Right? It should be celebrated even. But it's a means to something even better. It's a platform so you can get the thing that you really want that's even way cooler than that. All right? So Paul just said, Paul just said that God is saving people. He works sovereignly. He works miraculously. He works by loving the unlovely, by giving them the new identities and calling them to himself that he wants them to have so that. So then what? I mean, if those really awesome things are the means to a greater end, what's the greater end? Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life heirs we might become heirs of whom god church family salvation from the judgment of our sin is a wonderful thing to be saved away from nobody's doubting that for a second um, it is good and right to focus our attention on it. It is good and right to preach sermons about it. It is good and right to sing songs declaring the glories of god for his provision we can and do and will but being saved from judgment for our sin is nowhere near the fullness of what the Bible calls us to celebrate when it comes to the gift of God's Son on the cross, what the Lord purchased for us. In fact, in fact, an argument needs to be made that if we were merely saved from punishment, it would actually be a tragedy. It would not be good news. If we were merely saved to a neutrality with God, if the problem of sin were removed forever, and now God and man uh, were, were nothing more than two parties who used to be really mad at each other and used to not get along, but now they're just kind of hanging out in the same room, if that were the fullness of our salvation, that would not be good news at all. It's actually terrible news. Why? Because we were created to, for the express purpose of worshiping and walking in relationship to this God. We were created for far more than neutrality. I don't want neutrality. I need something far more than neutrality. Neutrality is not good enough. No, we need Him. We need Him. Oh, but thanks be to God. We've not merely been saved 
from something. We are also being saved to something. Forget about neutrality. No, salvation of the Lord secures for us sonship. It secures for us adoption. Those who belong to Jesus belong to the Father as sons and daughters. And, and this, this right here is why the call to godly living flows out of something much deeper than any attempt to try to play the game. It's not about putting on a show. In the Bible, sonship has way less to do with bloodline and way more to do with looking like your father. That's what sonship is about in the Bible. And so that means that people ultimately know that we belong to him because we look like him. Not a forced conformity, but the natural similarity that exists between a father and a son. Have you seen my kids? Poor Will, man. He's going to have to grow up looking as awkward as his daddy. He's not going to be able to escape it. Try as hard as he might. But that's the kind of family resemblance that Paul is talking about here. It's natural. It's not, you don't have to force it. You don't have to change a bunch of things. Of course they're his kids. Have you seen them? Who else, who else would they belong to? They look just like him. And so what happens? What happens whenever God's people continue to grow in maturity as, as our new identities in Christ cause us to look more like him and talk like him and, and be distinct from the world around us in both posture and purpose. What happens is that we point others both inside the church and outside the church to a better prize. That's what we're pointing people to. We point them to a supremely better prize of relationship with God himself. Uh, by the grace-fueled, consistent beauty of spiritual maturity, we end up inviting everyone on the fringe to invest themselves in that exact same beauty. Not because it's up to us to maintain some standard of righteousness, but because beauty bears fruit. And fruit is good and it affects everybody around you, and that God will use that fruit for our good and for His glory. But, but that's a lot of work on it for years so we can get some stuff paid off later kind of nonsense, right? Like, what do we do today? Like, I want some action steps for now. How do we respond to God's Word today? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is to do everything in our power to practice maturity. Not because it'll earn us some position with God or something that we want from Him. It's because it's who He is creating us to be. High time to finally be true to ourselves. We respond the same way every week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about Himself in the text. And so we want to we give you some, some space this morning to kind of do exactly that. To, to, to translate this from a head thing to a heart and an action thing before you rush off to the next thing. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That time is yours. I'll be down front if you want to talk. What if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? And I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. I think it's a great thing. You can respond to Jesus too, and you do that by meeting him. The Bible is, it teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the just and right punishment for God for that sin, death. The Bible calls it a lot of things. It never calls it something good. But the Bible also teaches that it is while we were still sinners that God changes 
us. He, he calls us to himself that Christ died for the ungodly, the eternal Son of God. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a Roman cross as a full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. You can do that today. You can respond to Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you if you want somebody to talk to about it. I'm here for it. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by formally joining our church family. Or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus in baptism. Or maybe it's time to say yes to the call that he's placing on your life to take the gospel to some faraway place. I, I, I hear there's an opening in Central Asia. I'd love to point you that direction. Whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Titus. Thank you for markers of maturity. I see things that I'm, that I'm weak in. And that doesn't make me fearful of losing my salvation, but it does mean that I've got some, some growing up to do. So help me do that. Help me repent of sin and lean into the good things that look more and more and more and more and more like you. Where I am weak, you are strong, so I'll lean on that. Where I lack wisdom, you have plenty to spare, and so I'll lean that on that too. Help us not only practice these things as individuals, but practice these things as a church. We want those who see us from the outside and those who stumble in and see us on the inside to understand that we belong to you. So help us look more like you. For those who don't know you this morning, would you make yourself known? Would you call people to yourself? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.